Hello, welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly podcast of Catholic Studies Academy. This is Dr. Benjamin Smith sitting in for Jason Gale. Today I am joined by our lecturer in theology, Dr. Richard Bolzichelli. Uh, Dr. Bolzichelli is not only a theologian, but he also has a degree in philosophy. Uh, and uh, as such, he's, he's interested in philosophical matters as well as theological matters. And I, I suppose in your fundamental theology class, when you've taught that in the past, you probably also dealt with some, some philosophy. Uh, today, we're going to uh, talk about uh, the fourth way, which is probably um, the fourth way that Thomas Aquinas uses to prove the existence of God. That's probably one of the, the arguments for the existence of God that um, probably seems the weirdest right? To, to most people. Um, it's probably one of the ones that's not used very often uh, in sort of a, in like a, you know, an apologetic context. Um, it's an interesting argument. Um, and, uh, and Dr. Bolzichelli is going to, you know, uh, explain to us how it works and, and why it's persuasive. And we'll uh, discuss maybe, you know, its strengths and its weaknesses and some of the background uh, that goes with it. Uh, Dr. Bolzichelli, why don't you uh, get us started here? Um, wh- why are you into? What, what do you think about this sort of as a, a general um, argument? What, what's sort of, in your view, the provenance of this argument? Like, what's its its general sort of background and approach? Well, how does it distinguish from the other arguments? Well, okay, so I think you know if you look at the um, if you look at the first and the second argument for God's existence in the Summa. Mm-hmm. What you, what you really see there is sort of an Aristotelian metaphysic, right? Sure, sure. More or less. Yeah. Um, and in the, uh, in the fourth way, though, so those two for those arguments, right, the first and the second, those are the ones that everybody talks about all the time. Sure. Um, and so, you know, here we are doing another podcast on Aquinas' arguments for God's existence, but, but we're not talking about those two arguments. And right. You know, maybe there just isn't need at this moment for yet another podcast on <laughs> those two arguments, but there will be in the future, of course, right? They never get old, but sure. um, but the fourth way I think is sort of under uh, under treated mm-hmm. to and today in particular, actually, I think mm-hmm. it's under treated. It's pretty interesting. It's not its provenance isn't really Aristotelian as far as I can tell, but more Platonic. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And, why do you, you know, why do you say why do you say that? Well, because there's i think that what it really comes down to is that judgments we make about the beauty or goodness uh or some sort of perfection of a thing in this world of of limited beings right Mm. is reference to something outside of the system Mm. i think that's the way the argument actually works Mm. and um i've got you know sort of two iterations of it in my mind one of which may be more um authentic to Thomas's mind and one of which might just represent my own way of, of kind of thinking about it, inspired by him. Okay. But I think that um, in either case, right, it comes down to a very similar point mm-hmm. that, that the reference against which we judge things as beautiful or true or good or just is, is not in the system of the world. It's not just other, yeah. it's not just relative to other things. Right. But, mm-hmm. but relative to something completely beyond the system. That's interesting the way you put it there. Uh, it does have the the fact that you're talking about judgments we make and references to a standard outside the system, right? That that does like the way I teach the um, 
as a uh, introduction to philosophy class the way I, I would teach kind of uh, platonic forms right uh, right is is in that that way right like I, I tend to push the idea that if we're going to have knowledge right then we need a logos a standard mm -hmm. um, that is universal and unchangeable um, so that we can you, you know like a universal unchangeable definition of triangle by which we can judge that there are triangles in this world, right? Or approximations of triangles, I guess, if we're Platonist. Uh, it is kind of interesting. I, I, you know, uh, I've gotten into this conversation uh, before uh, to think about metaphysics that I, I wonder for Plato, I think for Plato, I'm becoming more convinced that for Plato, there aren't substances in the world of change. Right. Uh -huh. That is that the only substances are really the forms. Right. And that everything else is kind of like, um, you know, uh, flux <laughs> right, mm -hmm. the, the, and just has accidental aggregation, uh, at, which may approximate the world of the forms. Right. Uh -huh. But isn't. No, that's not what Thomas is saying. Exactly. Uh, so sorry for the uh, uh, <laughs> the the um, um, rabbit trail <clears throat> there. But I think that. Um, it's interesting. It does sound platonic, right? If if you're thinking about it in terms of um, how we make judgments about the good or the beautiful, right? So if the, you know if our judgments about the good or the beautiful ultimately refer depend on or presuppose is that what way we would like to put it um, uh, something outside the system that is, I guess, good in itself, beautiful in itself. Uh -huh. Was that correct? Yeah. So I think. You know, I think if um, I think that St. Thomas probably isn't thinking that at a conscious level where, you know, we're sort of referencing that thing outside sure. the system. Sure, sure. But I think that he's saying, let me put it in contemporary terms, right? If he were to do a phenomenological analysis of such judgments, mm -hmm. he would discover, right, that there's something there's something going on in the formation of those judgments that can't be accounted for simply by uh, reference to other members of a class. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, maybe we should read the argument and yeah, and that, we can... that sounds good. Uh, I'll, I'll read here. Uh, just going with the standard old uh, Dominican English Dominican fathers here. Um, so I'll read through it and then you can uh, comment for us. Uh, so uh, Dr. Wilson Kelly. So here we go. The fourth way, that's the fourth way of proving the existence of God, is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. But more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum, as, as, as a thing is said to be hotter according as it more nearly resembles that which is the hottest. So that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently, something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as is written in Metaphysics 2. Now the maximum in any genus, this is probably the, the key premise here. Uh -huh. Now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus as fire which is the maximum heat is the cause of all hot things therefore there must also be something which is 
to all beings, the cause of their being goodness and every other perfection. And this we call God. Yeah. Right. So that's a, that's a, that's an interesting argument. Right. First, yeah. let's criticize, um, you know, maybe some aspects of his metaphysics, right. Okay. That, um, you know, today we might regard as, as sort of, um, passe, right. So he says the, um, he's, he mentions fire, right. As fire, which is the maximum heat is the uh-huh. cause of all hot things. Well, mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of presupposing an elemental structure of reality, right? In which sure. fire is one of the elements and it's the cause of, of hot things. Mm-hmm. Today, we don't accept that view, right? But sure. I don't think the argument stands or falls on that point. No, yeah, I think it's... Right, I, I just accident. want to get that out of the way because obviously yeah. I think one of the one of the things that people do with Aquinas' arguments is they take some cheap shots at, <laughs> at, at biology that we no longer accept or... Right, right, right. You know, or these kinds of, this sort of metaphysic... Um, or actually not metaphysic, it's really a physic that he's talking yeah, about. Right, 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 right. That we no longer we no longer accept, and so we don't mm-hmm. have to listen to anything he has to say. Really, he's just he's throwing that in as sort of an illustration, right? To That's right. Point. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a it's meant to be a substantial premise. It's an illustration, just like you yeah. said. Yeah. And an illustration can be false without the uh principle being false. Right. So the question is, is his principle correct? And I, I think well, I, I want to defend it. I think that his principle is correct. Okay. And, um, and if you think about it, just think about your experience, say, of observing beauty in the world or, or mm-hmm. goodness or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if we notice that... Um, like we apply the term beauty to many different things, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that when we apply the word beauty to these many different things, we're, we're applying it equivocally. I, okay. I don't, right? So I don't think that the beauty of a piece of music and the beauty of a woman and the beauty of a painting um, are equivocally, right? I don't think it's, I don't think they're completely different things. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Sure. Um, Although they seem quite different, right? I mean, the beauty of a woman, like in a lot of ways, would seem quite different than the beauty of, say, a piece of music. Yeah, they seem very different. Um, but, but I think that the reason that the word is meaningful to us in both in, in all those cases, right? Right, right, right. Is that um, is that we recognize some kind of similarity? So I would say that while they may not be univocal. They're, they're certainly analogous. Okay, good. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. They're not Th- equivocal. Thomas would like that. <laughs> yeah. They're not, they're not equivocal, right? Fra, Fra Thomas would, would, would nod. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're analogous to each other. Uh-huh. All right. Um, and now let's look inside. So now you've got, you've got three different classes of beings, right? That I just mentioned, right? A woman, sure. a painting, a piece of music. You could add nature too, if you want. And you could add na- a sunset. I mean, the list could yeah. go on and on. Sure, right? sure. We could make sure. it as long as we want. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then when you look at members within any given class, right, you could also compare them to each other. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think that for many people, the argument breaks down because they think that, you know, we're talking about um, you could have a salt shaker with more salt or less salt. 
uh-huh. and then you could have a salt shaker with the maximum amount of salt <laughs> but that doesn't imply that there's you know um saltness right that doesn't mm-hmm. really imply that it doesn't mm-hmm. imply that there's this this thing that's most salty uh and it's, <laughs> right it's the cause of all the salt and the other things mm-hmm. um but but i think they're making a mistake i don't think that's actually what aquinas is arguing mm-hmm. when we talk about more or less salt we're really kind of talking about um quantity mm-hmm Sure. And when, sure. when he's talking about these other things, he's kind of talking about qualities. That's interesting. Right? Perfection. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe like uh maybe intensity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, it's it's maybe that's not right either, but something like that seems correct because it, like you say, it's not just like increments, right? Uh, you know, like this one is, you know, I don't know what what would be a measure of beauty, but let's say you know, uh, you had this one's oh, three more units better in beauty, right? Uh-huh. Than than everything else. Well, that's not exactly what Aquinas is getting at. Right? Yeah, I don't think that's what he's saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, in our experience of reality, right, we can look at more than one member of a class, mm-hmm. and we could recognize it as being the most beautiful that a member of that class could be. Mm-hmm. And we could see that this is the interesting part, right? And this is why I say you know, when when earlier I said, if Aquinas does a a sort of a phenomenological analysis of the experience of making judgments about things, Mm -hmm. um, he's seeing that something more is going on than meets the eye, right? Yeah. So I I think that I think that if we look at this experience, right, we see that we can make this kind of judgment about more than one member of the same class. Mm -hmm. Even though the members of that those those individual members don't necessarily resemble one another very much Mm -hmm. sure does that make sense yeah 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 yeah. so there's there's some sort of being able to say beauty of both a woman and a uh sunset Uh sort of presupposes some kind of um maybe not univocal but um primary sense of beauty uh-huh. right that that transcends either of the things either of the subjects you're predicating or describing right yeah because those two i guess is this kind of what you're thinking because those two subjects are so different right uh-huh. like their similarity is really in relationship to some third that's right rather than than to each other is that correct? that's right yeah, and but I'm I'm saying that Aquinas is making this point both about objects between classes and objects within classes, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, you could imagine two different sunsets. Sure, sure. Each one, when you when you look at either one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're bowled over by it. You're like, mm-hmm. I can't imagine a sunset being more beautiful than that. Uh huh. But if you if you could sort of see both of them next to each other you would notice that they they are in fact different Mm -hmm, they don't just they're they're not identical sunsets right they're different yeah yeah um and so if in each case we only have a couple of a couple of options here right if in each case you said this is as beautiful as a sunset can be you (laughs) must either have been mistaken in one instance Uh or you um or both instances right Mm -hmm. or 
you are mistaken in neither instance, and the reference against which you're judging the beauty of the sunset is not is not sunsets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see what I right. mean? Yeah, sure, sure. So also with women or pieces of music or paintings or mm-hmm. or an, anything else, right? That we might mm-hmm. we might encounter in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, um, <clears throat> how do we get from? This seems to me a sort of a, a logical or an epistemological point you're uh-huh. making, right? Um, I've got a, a couple of questions about this, but um, how would you deal with a kind of a, maybe a little bit of anomalist pushback, right? What if I said, you know, okay, Rich, really what you're talking about or something like uh, what Wittgenstein calls family resemblances, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah, there, you know, the, this these two sunsets we're comparing, or these two pieces of music, <clears throat> you know, they're not exactly the same. Say you're um, comparing Bach and Brahms, right? So maybe they're they're not exactly the same, but they're similar enough, right? They have enough overlapping um, properties. Right, uh-huh. that we can recognize that that they overlap with other pieces of music that we call beautiful and other things that we call beautiful. Maybe not in a univocal way, but not in an equivocal way either. That that whole that whole framework is problematic. What we should just talk about is there's enough resemblance that we can intelligently enough overlap that we can intelligently talk about beauty without talking about a genus or a species that is beauty. Yeah. So um, I guess I might have a couple of reactions to that view. One, I don't think that account, I don't think that is an account, I guess. Is yeah. what, that's my first critique, because I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's an account. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a theory. It's a theory about um, relations between objects purely abstractly constructed it does not it doesn't deal with the data that's most important in this question which is the fact that we recognize something that we experience it as beautiful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so in other words you know i guess this is in some ways sort of a you know if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to (laughs) hear it to make a sound question sure sure right um when we make a judgment that something is beautiful, we're making a judgment that that involves the reaction of the subject to an object. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure, sure. I don't want to say that it's a purely subjective thing. Um, okay. What I want to say is that this object is the type that elicits this kind of response in this subject. Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and I think that we actually can discover that certain objects elicit similar responses in a wide in a in a wide range of subjects. Yeah, especially uh, you obviously human subjects, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know. It remind uh, what you're suggesting here reminds me, and we don't have to go down this trail too far, but this reminds me of um, what you're saying. Uh, C.S. Lewis in the uh, little book. Yeah, uh, Abolition of Man. Yeah, Yeah. Abolition of Man has a great uh, little opening where he talks about, um, 
you know, different ways of thinking about the beauty or uh, of a waterfall or whether yeah, right. it's sublime or not. Right. And, uh-huh. you know, he, he says, you know, a modern way of looking at this would be to say, uh, when I say that the water, is, uh, the waterfall is beautiful, I'm really just expressing my feelings about the waterfall and nothing else. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he says an older way of looking at it is to say, I have these feelings about the waterfall because it has certain qualities, namely that it's sublime and beautiful. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. 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 That yeah. the, 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 this object <clears throat> does elicit in me a certain set of feelings to be sure. Uh, but um, it's the object that does it. It's not that I just project onto it uh, some description or some evaluation or some set of feelings, but it's actually, it's a, it's a response, right? Um, I love the description. Uh, it helped me a lot. And when I'm trying to understand Aristotle, when somebody described to me that sensible qualities are like keys that open the powers, right? Uh-huh. Of the, uh, the sensible powers, right? They're, they're such, our, our powers, our capacities are such that when they're confronted with, when they encounter sensible qualities, they're actualized, right? Yeah, like a key right. unlocking a, a uh-huh. lock, you know? Um, so that, that's, that's, I take it that that's a, a, a correct way of describing your view about the, um, um, I guess, that beauty or goodness or whatever we want to talk about is actually in the things, not just sort of- The uh, eye of the beholder. In the eye of the beholder. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do tend to think that. Now, obviously, right, obviously there's a, there's a great deal to be said about subjective responses to various things, right? Sure. People do perceive mm-hmm. things in different ways, and some people are moved more by one object than another, but I still think that we can see in sort of an aggregate observation of human responses to various mm-hmm. objects mm-hmm. that there's a great deal of universality. Okay. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and I think that those, what we are talking about are, are qualities in things mm-hmm. and how they then relate to subjects. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. That's a good, that's a good response. I mean, we could, yeah, we could go, we could keep going on that, but that's, yeah. A good so I mean, again, my point is, my point yeah. in response to him is simply that, you know, he's an account is something that has to, when I say that, you know, do you have an account of this? What mm-hmm. I, what I mean is, is do you have, um, do you have a way of, do you have a way of explaining um, why, X, Y, and Z in my observation is mm-hmm. would be the case, right? Yeah. And I think I think what this nominalist critique um, provides, it, it just doesn't it just doesn't answer one of my one of my central questions. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you know, to be perfectly honest, um, um, I was uh, having a conversation with. Uh, um, uh, maybe several weeks ago with Mr. Grossheim about uh, who's been on this podcast before um, about metaphysics. And I thought, you know, one of the things uh, is that the belief that there are real essences, uh-huh. right. That's actually that thesis, I should say. Um, that's actually probably the, among the most important <laughs> right? metaphysical theses. It sounds kind of boring at first, but, you know, I really think that modern metaphysics, just sort of presupposes nominalism you know like this oh, yeah. you know there's just a bunch of stuff out there 
they sort of group together in accidental aggregates, but really everybody's kind of an atomist, right? Like that there aren't, uh-huh. you know, maybe it's a very sophisticated version of atomism, but um, really there aren't essences as a reality, right? In yeah. things. Um, right. That seems to me to be like uh, kind of just presupposed in an enormous number of uh, metaphysical issues and as well as more cultural uh, issues. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay, great. So my, my second thought here is how do we get, so you're making some, and this isn't in, in the argument, uh, you're making some epistemological points with some, uh, you know, that has some metaphysical presuppositions. How do we get from epistemology to being, right? Is, uh, you follow me? Like uh, I yeah. get, you know, Plato likes to make this move uh, from, you know, this has to be the case for there to be knowledge and truth. There is knowledge and truth. Therefore, there is this being, right? This you know, sort of transcendent uh, world of forms. Uh, is that what you see Thomas doing? Or do you see Thomas doing something different than that? Is it how platonic are we going here? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I don't think Thomas is a Platonist, strictly speaking. Sure. Um we know enough about his metaphysic overall, right? To say that mm-hmm. he's a hylomorphist. He sees real substances in the world. Right, yeah. Um, but I, I think that actually one of the things we don't appreciate sufficiently, uh, either about Aristotle mm. or about the Aristotelian metaphysicians of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. is the extent to which Platonic thinking is actually an influence sure. for yeah. them, right? Yeah, so I, in other I words, totally when agree. I look at Plato and Aristotle, I don't see people, I don't see two people who are wildly apart from each other. Okay. What I see is people attempting to grapple with the same basic set of problems. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we look at the conflict between, say, um, like look at the tension between Heraclitus and Parmenides. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I think this is really what the question comes down to for, <laughs> for the establishment of these two main metaphysical trajectories. Yeah, it's it is fascinating. I think you're totally right, Rich. It is fascinating. I, I, the, the the longer I've studied philosophy, the more I've come to appreciate the pre-Socratics and they're they're uh-huh. just, they're they're genius, even when they're wrong. Right, just, even when they're wrong, because they're, they're asking just, the right genius. questions. <laughs> right, yeah. they're asking the right yeah. questions, and those cor- those questions demand answers. Right, so mm-hmm. so here's Heraclitus. He looks out the window and he sees that things are changing all the time, and he's right. And he's right. That's a good observation. Right? So um, I guess that means, right, there's no permanence. That's kind of his conclusion. Nothing's really <laughs> right. permanent. <laughs> right. And then Parmenides is like, but that, that can't be, uh-huh. right? That can't be. First of all, mm-hmm. um, again, I'll project a, a more contemporary mindset on him maybe, but but, you know, he would be like, you look out the window and there's a tree out in front of your yard, right? Mm-hmm. In, in your front yard. And in the winter, it loses its leaves. And in right. the spring, it, it grows yeah. them back. Yeah. You don't perceive this as two different trees. You perceive it as one tree. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and moreover, it doesn't, you don't think it's not a tree the next day. Yeah. You don't right? think it's you're, not a tree the next day. Oh, like it became a rabbit, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's still a tree, right? Right. So basically he's saying, he's saying, um, Look, the, the only thing, the only thing that can account for being is being, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's change that's the illusion, 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. That's brilliant. And the thing is, you can't, neither, it, it seems clear to me that neither of these two responses can possibly be correct. <laughs> and yet the question, uh-huh. the question that, the, the question to which each of these responses is a response, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is an obvious question that has to be asked and answered. Sure. And, it, and, and, and to go back to what you said, uh, something you said earlier, it is an account. Right. Like you can see uh-huh. why, like how you would think that way. It is a logos, right? You can give a, uh, an explanation. When I teach metaphysics very often, I spend at least a week on Parmenides and just hammer away uh-huh. at the idea that, of course, change has to be an illusion. And I try to, you know, I try to pitch it that way to kind of provoke the students into really thinking about being. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, that strange phrase from Aristotle. We have to think about being as being, right? <laughs> that really, it's just, yeah, man, it's hard to wrap your head around. It should be hard, right? Yeah. Um, and both uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides answer, you know, give a give an account um, that's that's interesting and has some some force behind it at least. Uh, and then you think about both Plato and Aristotle, right? You know, Plato says yes and no right Uh he says yes there is permanence in the forms and i'm pretty these days i I, i'm pretty persuaded that he thinks that the world of change is just a heraclitian flux right it's just you know this this i agree you know i agree i actually that's the way i see him too i i see him as saying that the world the world of the world our world Mm -hmm. is heraclitian flux except except that there's a link made from the world of forms to it mm-hmm. that gives it shape, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that that yeah. sort of imposes a kind of dependability <laughs> on it that sure. doesn't belong to it in its own properly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It you know, almost kind of makes you feel sorry for the uh, was it the demiurge in the uh-huh. in the uh, uh, in the Timaeus, right? Because he's uh-huh. he's trying to like patch he's everything. So much work to do. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to, you know, create this kind of order. Uh, uh that's a whole nother. we should do a podcast just on the Timaeus sometime. But anyways, yeah. um the and then Aristotle, you know, Aristotle w- wants to kind of split the difference too. He splits the difference between Heraclitus and Parmenides a different way, right? right? He wants to say the way I try to put to my students is that within the world of change there is some permanent structures or patterns, right. Uh-huh. That are unchanging. So it's not that cha- it's not that there's a, an individual sort of unit uh, within the world change that never changes, but the pattern, right. Never changes within uh-huh. the world of change. And of course, there's an unmoved mover, but that's outside of the world change. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, they're addressing uh, similar, questions come up with some different answers um but yeah there's still all sort of there is a unity of consideration there right um now we were talking about that in terms of plato and aquinas so um what do you want to say all right so i want to say that for aquinas Aquinas, yeah Mm -hmm. for aquinas there's there's a more robust platonic element than one finds in aristotle I think. Okay. I think so. All right. So, and you, of course you want to keep in mind, right. That until, until Thomas's time, I mean, it, during his lifetime, right. Mm-hmm. It was still the case that 
that the church's preferred metaphysical approach to things was platonic. Sure. Right. Sure. Neoplatonic. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, so, you know, you gotta, you, you want to put him in his historical context and sure. And see what kind of influences there must've been on his mentality. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I think this is the case, right? That he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of looking at, uh, he's looking at the concept of God as essentially doing the work that Aquinas, that uh, doing the work that Plato's um, world of forms does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and also the work of the Demiurge, right? Yeah, so sure, sure. God is clearly more than a Demiurge. Yes. Or Thomas, right? Yeah. But, um, but basically his providential care over the universe keeps everything mm-hmm. in order, right? He mm-hmm. establishes, he establishes the natural law. He executes the natural law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the account of the permanence of things. Okay. Okay. Right. And that's basically what this argument is saying, right? He's yeah. essentially the, the account of the permanence of things. Um, so we, um, and also the next, you know, the next argument, the fifth way from the government of, from the sure, government. Of, from sure, the world, sure, right? sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Rich, though, how do we, how do we still, I'm still kind of wondering, though, about moving from epistemology to an ontological yeah. conclusion. So I guess the, que- the question would be, well, does our knowledge require an account? And I think the answer to that is yes. Sure, of course. Right. So um, I seem to know something. I seem to have these concepts of beauty and goodness and truth. Well, they could be illusions, but we don't experience them as illusions. And I, no. I don't think, I think there's enough phenomenologist in Thomas to, to see that if I, if my mind is so constituted as to form certain kinds of judgments, that it's probably the case that there's something about reality that causes that to happen. Mm-hmm. Does that sure. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when I uh, defend realism, I tend to to argue in that direction. Uh, you know, like if <laughs> we we think being because there is being, <laughs> right? Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't think at all. <laughs> right. Know? Well, what you have is the odd thing is where you have an intellect that seeks for an account. I mean, I guess you might be able to hold this view, but it. I, I I give up the I give up the fight at that. Point. I mean I don't know where to go with this. Sure, I think dialectically you know, dialectically you can't though. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, I think you end up in a self refuting kind of. I position. have a mind that forms these kinds of judgments mm-hmm. that thinks these these sorts of things that recognizes the concept of truth, um, and yet it doesn't correlate with anything in reality. It's just a complete sort of mental illusion. Right, right, uh, right. In which case, you're making truth claims and. You're <laughs> right. You're uh, you're you're kind of defeating yourself. I have a mind that demands accounts of things, right? And there's no account <laughs> that kind of a mind or right. uh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. That doesn't seem to work well. So if we if we can pre- if we can make these kind of predications, then that pre- presupposes a highest standard, and then we want to to draw the inference make the inference that, or Thomas wants to seem to make the inference that, um, therefore it's, there must be, this thing must exist and be the cause of these things that, uh, because uh-huh. he does use causal language there. So can you kind of explain that inference a little bit? Yeah. So this is an interesting one. In mm-hmm. what sense does it cause these things? Okay. 
Well, Thomas, you know, he, for Thomas, there are four causes that he accepts. Sure. Um, for many medievals, right, there's a fifth cause. Mm, mm-hmm. Thomas doesn't speak of it, but I think he's employing it here. Okay. All right. So even though he doesn't, he's not recognizing it, usually it's not in the system of causes. I, I do think he implicitly accepts it. All right. And that is the exemplary cause. Gotcha. All right. Does, so he, not, does is, he not speak of that somewhere? I thought he did. Maybe well, I'm wrong. When, he, when he outlines his four causes, when he outlines the sure. causes, he, he doesn't talk. He doesn't about. Yeah. He doesn't list yeah. it as one as a true cause. Right. Interesting. Okay. But to me, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about it, but I, I do think that's the case. That's always mm-hmm. how I've understood him. Um, but it, to me, I, I think the exemplary cause is a real cause. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think it appears as such actually in the, in the gospel of John, right? The okay. very idea of the logos is a, mm-hmm. among other things, it's an exemplary cause, right? It's sure, the, sure. the inner logic of God by which he patterns the world. God doesn't mm-hmm. have some pattern of things on which he could model the structure of the universe um, other than himself, right? Other than his own, his own mind. Right. There's nothing prior to God, right? Right. There's nothing prior to God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing prior. There's nothing that isn't, let's put it this way. There's nothing that isn't God mm-hmm. that's prior to creation. Right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So good. Good point. So he's got nothing to he's got nothing to work with but himself. Yeah, that's a great point. It's very important, actually. It, yeah, and so here's what Bonaventure is saying, right? Thomas's contemporary mm-hmm. that essentially um, God's God leaves his vestigiae, right? His footprints, mm-hmm. fingerprints, his marks uh, on everything that he creates. Everything right. he creates is in some way patterned on his own existence, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look closely enough, if you have eyes to see it, uh, you can perceive something about the truth of God in things. Right, right. And I think that's what, I think that's basically what this argument is. That's interesting. That's a, that's a really interesting interpretation, Rich. Uh, I don't think I've, I've heard several different interpretations of the fourth way. The fourth way is always good for a conference paper. If, if any anybody's a philosophy student out there and you're looking for a good uh, a good subject matter for a conference paper, the fourth way is always a good one, right? There's lots of different kind of interpretations. Um, I don't know that I've I've heard or read uh, read about it. Maybe as an example, maybe Henley uh, talks about that. But uh, that's a, that's a very interesting account um, that this is about exemplar causality, right? Uh, I'm not sure that I 100% agree, but I think it's a it's a very good interpretation, very interesting interpretation. Yeah, um, how would you how would you um, you know the this, the, the, the premise that's weird to me that that seems so interesting to me and maybe weird. So I don't know is this now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, right? That's a that's I mean that's a, that's like kind of like a a premise that Thomas drops from time to time, right? As if it's just uh-huh. like, like it, like, oh, this is obvious, right? You know? Yeah, and you right? wonder, is it obvious? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh-huh. And then, <clears throat> weirdly, it seems for him to use that premise in this argument seems to kind of contradict his own metaphysics. It does because God's not in a genus. Yeah, that's right. Right, yeah. and so I'm like, and now there's being. Being is not, yeah. in, you know, so I'm like, I don't know exactly how this 
is going to work. Yeah, it seems, I think he's. It seems I think a little he's weird. Yeah. Analogously, though, I, I okay. I mean, look, you I, see what, I, I, uh, what my the problem I'm having with that. I know? totally get it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I I saw that too. Mm-hmm. I um. Yeah, he because he he explicitly addresses the question. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if you if you're uh, like. Uh, uh, if you're uh, a major, you know, a, a philosophy major and you're in a Catholic college, one thing you know about Aquinas, right, is that being is analogous, right? You know, uh-huh. the being is not, I mean, if, if you I, know anything, right, about Thomas, you should know that, right? One of the major debates between the Scotistic and Thomistic schools that's right, exactly. is over this question, right? That's right, that's right, 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 right. So, um, so I, I think he, he has to be sort of using it in an analogous, he has to be saying that analogously. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's so. If that's the case, then it seems to me there's something about the idea of the maximum is the perfect. Yeah, and the perfect is that which has it has whatever we're talking about mm-hmm. in itself, and as such, it's the efficient cause of everything that is below it right that is uh-huh. it, it distributes um that quality of perfection that it has in itself that everything else has um by participation so i mean there's a lot packed into <laughs> thinking uh-huh. about it that way um and i'm not 100 percent sure that, that that i mean that that i'll i'll concede i'm uh in, in saying that i'm reading a lot into the premises um so uh, of the argument so i'm not sure that that's what thomas intends i i do think in the have you ever read the um um oh gosh what's it called um is it the book of causes by thomas do you know what i'm talking yeah. about uh, it, it, it's an interesting book uh-huh. if i remember correctly it's commentary on proclus um and uh which is, of course, you know, then ends up being very Neoplatonic, uh-huh. right? Um, and when I was in graduate school, I really enjoyed exploring that text and trying to understand participation, you know, because Thomas does use that participation language. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, you're like, it, you know, it, and whereas Aristotle is like, nah, I'm not doing any participation. So, uh-huh. you know, yeah. you know, and no, uh, but it's, a, yeah. it's an important idea in Thomas, though. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, you actually, you can find it all over the place. And it seemed to me, you know, this goes back a ways in 20th century Thomism uh, arguments, you know, uh, Corne- um, Cornelius Fabro uh, has some interesting uh, arguments about this um, interpretations. Um, but it seems to me that that participation for Thomas, Thomas's understanding of participation, ultimately involves efficient causality, um, <clears throat> even though it does involve uh, perfect versus imperfect. Right. So what I got from the um, De Libro, I think that's what it's usually uh, referred to, is that something participates when it receives from another imperfectly that which belongs to another perfectly and in itself um d- does that make sense yeah i think that's what he thinks yeah i think uh, that's so maybe so maybe i would kind of lean towards this as a participation argument but again uh-huh. I'm, that's reading a lot into this very uh 
I mean, these, the, you know, these arguments are like, I mean, I look at the screen here. It's like, they're like five lines long. Yes. Yeah, they're pretty condensed. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of have to almost have to do some reading in. I mean, I guess with the first and second way, we have so much of Thomas talking about act and potency and motion that we can read in with a good bit of of certainty, right? Like we can take a pro, one of those premises, like uh, that every every effect has a cause. Well, I can explain that pretty clearly because of what Thomas says in other places yeah, about right. cause and effect and change, right? Uh-huh. Um, which which is mostly standard Aristotelian stuff. Um, this one's you know just just harder, but uh, but I appreciate your your interpretation there. Exemplar causality. That's a good. Uh, it's interesting. Um, and and maybe indeed that that's what Thomas means. Um, the uh, just wrapping up here, it, having that read uh, reminds me of a work by um, I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Gerson, who has a very interesting text called Aristotle and Other Platonist, uh-huh. uh, which is meant to be a provocative title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where he gives a very Neoplatonic read of uh, Aristotle, actually, uh, which was in the ancient world. The majority report, right? The majority report um, before in the ancient world, uh, post Aristotle, um, was that Aristotle and Plato are actually in harmony, right? Yeah, uh, right. And that, which is an interesting hypothesis, right? Uh, because we tend to see them, you know, more um, in in disagreement. Um, and this would, you know, sort of be kind of um, going along with that. That you know, actually, maybe this is a more platonic style argument. One thing that would be, you know, uh, that would support that hypothesis, just as a historical uh, context matter, is that Thomas, you know, is very indebted to uh, Ibn Sinai or Avicenna, uh-huh. and Avicenna, uh, you know, is an Islamic uh, philosopher, uh, but is very Neoplatonic, right? Yeah, right. Um, it, which Neoplatonism, you know, really blends Aristotle and Plotinus. Yeah. Uh, together and i think I, I can see a lot of plotinus in there in aquinas to be honest uh-huh. um and so um i think that's that's the that that's a just a historical context kind of uh piece that would be uh in favor of your uh interpretation do you have any last uh comments you want to make before we we wrap up here rich well yeah so i i think the one thing i would want to say and we could talk about this for hours more i'm sure but sure. like <laughs> You know, one of the things I want to say is that these arguments for God's existence, as you pointed out, you know, they're they're very short. Mm-hmm. He gives five mm-hmm. arguments. That's what makes the that's what makes the article seem longer, right? Is right. is five arguments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you look at any given argument, it's very short, mm-hmm. extremely condensed. Right. We have to understand what the purpose of the um, disputed question was in the Middle Ages, right? The Summa Theologiae okay. is written on the model of a disputed question. Yes, yes. And the, um, the, it was a teaching instrument, right? Mm-hmm. The point mm-hmm. of it is actually to, um, it's actually to generate conversation, to guide conversation, right? And to refine the conversation in, mm-hmm. uh, in a seminary. Sure. Right. Yep. So, um, so the, the expectation, right, isn't that you just read the argument and you know, okay, let's move on. <laughs> You're going to talk about it for hours, that's right, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's an important observation, uh, an important uh, reminder, uh, Rich. Uh, thank you, Dr. Will Scali, so much. This has uh, been a fun conversation. Uh, it's, it's th- This stuff is wonderful to explore and think about. And I'm sure that uh, our listeners 
um, we'll have lots to think about uh, uh, going forward. Um, thanks so much, and uh, everybody have a good day, and uh, uh, God bless. Until next time.